Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Tangled Knot with Deb Rojas. With the help of our Heavenly Mother Mary, undoer of knots, Deb seeks to help us untangle the knots we find and often cause in our own lives. Deborah Rojas, MS, is a psychotherapist and mental health counselor at Integrity Counseling Services. A graduate of Divine Mercy University, Deborah utilizes a variety of approaches within a Catholic Christian framework depending on the needs of the client. These approaches include cognitive behavioral therapy, internal family systems, emotion-focused therapy, forgiveness therapy, person-centered therapy, gestalt techniques, and narrative therapy. She specializes in women's issues, relationship trauma, spiritual trauma, physical and sexual trauma, anxiety and depression, and grief and loss. She also works with priests, pastors, and seminarians, drawing from her background of over 20 years of working in both Protestant and Catholic churches. For more information about Deb and Integrity Counseling, please visit them at IntegrityCounselingPA.com. Once again, the address is IntegrityCounselingPA.com. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Deb Rojas. Deb Rojas. Uh, Deb had a, an emergency situation that came up at the last minute that she had to deal with. And so I am sitting in the director's chair tonight for Deb Rojas. We have a very special guest tonight on the show. He is an expert on Catholic presentations. He is a published author of six books. He is an expert on uh, private revelations and Catholic miracles, such as Eucharistic miracles. And he's an expert on relics of the church. Uh, He also happens to be my dear friend of 13 years. And we share almost a thousand mutual friends on Facebook, so we kind of we're kind of in the same circles. But uh, very honored to call him my brother in Christ. Very honored to call him my friend. Uh, very good man. Very knowledgeable man. Dr. Gregory Thompson, how are you this evening? Oh, better than wonderful, my brother. And God bless you. It uh, humbles me anytime uh, someone th- says such kind things about me. I don't. I know I came from a background that like many people that have had an opportunity to uh, been touched by the good Lord and his mother. Uh, when, when we come from a past that has a part that is not uh, especially uh, honorable, mm-hmm. uh, we we felt unworthy for sure. And uh, I remember the name of my, I uh, got a copy of it right in front of me. I wanted to tell you the name of the sixth book. I forgot to tell you that. It's a disloyalty to God and treason to country. What will happen if we don't return to one nation under God? Well, for the people who weren't fortunate enough to hear our conversation before, 
Why don't you go through your six titles, start to finish? Okay, my first book uh, was uh, uh, Forbidden Secrets, and uh, I actually, when Good Lord first got a hold of me, and it all belongs to him, but I, <laughs> I actually had a subtitle in at the, at the at the bottom, by the Holy Spirit through His humble servant Gregory Thompson. Well, that's uh, still, I think, a little bit of pride to even be able to say that. But I, I, uh, I know that uh, everything that was good in it came from the good Lord, and not me. And uh, when we try to stay out of waves, good things might happen, <laughs> you know. So yeah, but but uh, forbidden secrets. I it was my first uh, attempt to bring some. Uh, clarification on what happened in my own life to turn me around and also uh, uh, some started into telling people what was happening in the education of their children, not only in the government schools, which are purely uh, run by Marxist com- communist Satanism, and uh, but also even, even in the Christian Catholic schools, you know, things that have, uh, that are a little bit out of line still although I can say some elements better, but there's still some elements that they haven't got a handle on yet and and uh, we need to pray about for sure because our children our children are at risk big time. Yeah. And uh, so the first book uh, starts giving a little foundation on the education, uh, really comes into full throttle with the second book, which is giving aid and comfort to the enemy, which the, the uh, bottom of that was uh, an 11th hour wake-up call for sleeping pastors, leaders, families, and, and uh, nation. And then the uh, third book was uh, Where Are Our Shepherds? It was wrote that one after I was arrested a couple of times. And one of the particular times that you were arrested uh, and that is uh, seen on that book was at the University of Notre Dame. Why don't you talk about that? Yes, that was uh, pretty remarkable what happened there. And, you know, it's one of those things where you look back and, and, and it's one of the things as you go forward you say there's no accidents because I was still uh, just, I was re- really researching my own faith. I didn't feel like I had a good handle to be able to defend my faith at that time. And, uh, going forward and I was really researching a lot at that time not only scripturally but doctors and saints of the church etc and uh I uh I saw an art, I saw a program about 11 o'clock at night on, as I was at my desk and I saw Dr. Alan Keyes who's run for president a couple of times I don't know if you know Dr. Keyes but he's mm-hmm. very art, very articulate and and they never would let him get on the stage with the other One's running for president, and I truly believe that because they would not have been able to stand with him. You know, well, well so no, I, I I agree with you. I mean, he he very clearly every time he spoke, you could see he was the he was the brightest light in the room. And um, yeah, I, I've heard a couple of debates that that uh, Dr. Keyes gave, and yeah, he was he was next level, but. He didn't. Uh, he didn't fit the paradigm of what a candidate is supposed to look like, unfortunately. Uh, you know. Yeah, uh, so sure. 
For sure. Any, any, at that time, anybody that could speak articulately about uh, the good Lord and his mother and, and where, where we were as a country, uh, uh, most of them could not speak to that because they weren't living it or didn't know what they don't know, just like most of us don't know what we don't know. And that's that's where we find most of our our uh, brothers and sisters sitting in the pews in Catholic churches that just mm-hmm. uh, the catechesis for the last 60 years has been so poor, even in the seminaries, that a lot of the a lot of the priests were not catechized properly, and and for sure a lot of the families and a lot of especially cradle Catholics, majority of them just felt like a you know probably an element of when I was superintendent of schools uh, that I would have in my prideful days. Uh, what can you tell me that I don't already know? You right. Know, and, and they probably thought they had a handle on everything, which it was uh, if we wouldn't be in the shape we're on if they did have a handle on things. Right. But, uh, okay, so what, what are the rest of the titles, real quick? The rest of the titles are, are uh, the third one I said is, uh, Where Are Our Shepherds? The fourth one is, Do You Love Me? That's, uh, uh, if we remember who said that, the good Lord said that to uh, to Peter after he denied him three times. Uh, the, the, fifth, fourth, the fifth one is, uh, do you love my mother? And uh, then the, the sixth one I just mentioned is uh, disloyalty to God and treason to country. What, what will happen? And at the bottom it says, every life matters, and we must expose and stop the Marxist communist agenda that has infiltrated all parts of our once great nation from top to bottom in every entity, which includes the Catholic Church. You're listening to the Tangled Knot on the Four Persons Network, and our guest is Dr. Gregory Thompson. If you'd like to call in to be part of the show, the number is 515-602-9655. Again, 515-602-9655. Dr. Greg, um, I invited you on the show tonight specifically to talk about relics. Now, relics are one of those things that our Protestant brothers and sisters kind of look at us that this is kind of that kind of dark, superstitious type of Catholicism, at least that's from, from their vantage point. I don't see it that way at all. Uh, I know you remember a few years ago there was a horrific fire at uh, – Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris and rescued from that fire was one of the most precious relics that we have in our Catholic faith. Do you remember that? Yes. Why don't you talk about it? Well, uh, like you said, it was rescued, uh, you know, and again, no accident. Uh, Something that... uh, Awesome in in the faith uh, to be rescued again. I would say it's it would be an, to the element of miraculous, you know, with how bad that uh, fire was. Mm-hmm. But they rescued a uh, a crown of thorns. Yep. And uh, you know that was uh, you know if, if we read enough in the research on on a crown of thorns, uh, just how, how they pushed that in down into into Christ's head was enough to kill him, maybe not immediately, but over time it was enough mm-hmm. 
the ferociousness of that was such that uh, it would have killed Christ. Just even even one thing, you know, like the crown of thorns, which was. And it was kind of a double. It was kind of a double um, curse because it was it was not only an implement of torture, but it was an implement of humiliation. They were mocking him. you know, hail King of the Jews, and they and they made this this crown of thorns to mock him. And I brought it up, Doctor Greg, because it's so important. Because that relic is a bridge to reality. That relic is is a tangible sign that this really happened. It's not something from fables or storybooks there really was a crown of thorns that was really placed on the head of the real Jesus. Mm-hmm. Do you see that as the importance of these relics? Oh, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's almost, uh, uh, you know, to say it in the way I'll say it is just a, uh, uh, the, the relics that happened with Jesus are, are the crown, you know, the uh, the uh, the cross that he actually that he actually died on, you know, and the crown of thorns, and and the uh, you know the different elements of of things that uh, were part of who Jesus was. His holy sepulcher, probably most most visited uh, uh, in Jerusalem when I was there. There were so many people, like five or six lines abreast of each other trying to get up to there and they let you in for maybe 15 or 20 seconds and then they head you out because there's so many people coming in so they bring you in about you know maybe four or five at a time and then you're there for about 15 20 seconds they take you out and i was hard-headed enough because i can't hear very well when they wanted everybody to leave when i was there i ended up staying for the next 10 or 15 seconds (laughs) from the next group but, uh, now, our Protestant brothers and sisters who, you know, look down on the idea of of, uh, of uh, relics, uh, I can think of right off the top of my head three examples of relics from the from the Bible. You had the bones of Joseph, the old the Old Testament Joseph, that were carried with them when they uh, made the Exodus out of Egypt. You had the bones of uh, uh, Elisha, the uh, prophet successor of Elijah, uh, and you had the handkerchief of Paul. All three of these were uh, were examples of rel- relics mentioned in the Bible. And with two of the three, there are miracles uh, attached to two of the three, um, and that has continued until modern time. A lot of these relics have miracles attached to them, right? Amen. Yes. And, you know, it's just, uh, uh, you know, I even have a sibling, a brother that's very intelligent. He's a, he's a dentist, but he's uh, almost, uh, you know, leans toward the agnostic side, especially with uh, one of his favorite commentaries. You know, we've, I've lessened that hold on him completely, but uh, was the, uh, oh, who was the uh, atheist that used to, uh, have a debate, Christians. Uh, and Hitchens, of, Christopher Hitchens. 
Do what? Were the Hitchens? Could have been a Hitchens, yeah, or, or, or one of those or guys. Dalk- it was. Dalkins? It could have, it could have, it definitely was one of those guys, and okay. and uh, you know, but he has really uh, started loosening up a little bit. I know it's prayer that's doing that. Uh, I've even had him uh, one time when he was we were debating. I guess uh, some would call it an argument, and, and he would tell my other brothers he'll ne- he never gives an inch. And doesn't let me have any any part, of, you know. And I said I would if you were telling talking the truth. You know, anyway, when we were, when I was leaving that day uh, from his dental office, he took me to the back door, and as I'm going out, I said, "Well, I'll pray for you, Paul." And he said, "I'll pray for you too." And I said, "Who are you going to pray to?" Right, <laughs> himself. And, so, and he said, so "Yeah." Greg, you he recently said, oh, yeah, sent right. me. You recently sent me some third class relics uh, a while back, which I was really thankful for. So I want to start the conversation there. I want you to talk about the third-class relics that you sent me and other people and and kind of use that as a starting point. I want you to uh, describe the difference between third-class, second-class, and first-class relics and start with the third-class and work your way up and explain what each each of these designations means and give and give examples. Okay. Uh, what, what the church uh, uh, teachers in the magisterium is that uh, – a third-class relic is something that, like when we touch a sacramental, like a rosary or miraculous medal or something, to a first- or second-class relic, that that can become a third-class relic, which basically it can't touch other things and make anything happen. You know, it becomes a third-class relic. It just uh, I, I tell uh, people it's like, you know, first of all, you don't want a sacramental unless it's blessed. And when they're blessed and then they're touched to a first or second class relic, it just takes it to a special level. Now, I, I'm not going to say because I haven't experienced it or seen it yet that, that a third class relic can actually have miraculous power, but that when you leave it to God in God's hands, I guess it could, but I haven't known of it yet. So, it's so, just to, a ver- so to make very it special, clear... So, so to make it clear, like a third-class relic would not be like a rosary that belonged to Padre Pio. It would be like a rosary that was touched to a rosary that belonged to Padre Pio. Would be that kind of example? It would be like, like uh, somebody else's blessed rosary touched Padre Pio's uh, rosary, who, who would be a first-class relic. And... Uh, then, uh, and you actually sent me rosaries that were that were touched to a uh, gar- article of Arlie's clothing, yes. and to an article of the or, or a remnant of the uh, crown of thorns. Correct. And a and also a, I think it was either that and and or. A piece of I, I had a, a piece of the cross that Jesus died on, wow. which is a first class relic. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Okay, so now walk us up to the difference between a third class relic and a second class relic. To take us to a second class relic. Okay, a second class relic would be something that uh, you know, again, something that's very special to the saint. You know that, uh, like a piece of clothing, a pair of shoes. There, 
personal Bible or something special to them that they that was theirs, that would be like a second class relic. You know. So like and, the rod of like the rod of Aaron that's in the Ark of the Covenant would be a second class relic. Yes. There you okay. go. And, uh, and, that, then, and now take us to a first-class relic. What, what, what's a first-class relic? A first-class relic would be uh, like uh, a piece of the body. It would be somebody's eyeball or their heart or their, you know, a, uh, you know, their fingernails or their hair or, or something. Something that is a piece of the body of that uh, mm-hmm. saint. The only thing that's a little different on that is that everything that was a part of Jesus, you know, and what he did uh, could have been where he was a piece of the Holy Sepulchre, you know, which is not right. a piece of the body. But uh, Jesus has a little bit of pull. Everything, right. everything that he's done or touched or been a part of is is a first-class relic. Right. And, uh, just I have, I have something on that I'd like to bring, bring a thought forward uh, to mm-hmm. you. Uh, and something you can research and even uh, discuss back with me when you when you think about it, because I just really started bringing this thought up in the last two days, very deeply. You know, because I was thinking about Mary is in heaven. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, but uh, I had been reading about uh, fetal microchimerism. Are you familiar mm-hmm. with that? Mm-hmm. And, I know where you're going with this. And so, uh, and I think it was uh, St. Augustine that said, uh, you know, that uh, the, you know, the blood of Jesus and the body, uh, flesh and blood of Jesus came from Mary. So, so and, what, uh, what Dr. Greg is talking about here, for those who have never heard that term, is scientific uh, studies have revealed that when a woman is pregnant with a child, and, and gives birth to that child, parts of that child's DNA actually become embedded in that mother so that it is a permanent part of who she is for the rest of her life. Um, and I know where you're going with this because think of the implications of that for the mother of Jesus. That she carried around a part of Jesus in her for all of her life, and, and, and that's uh, that, that's mind-boggling. It, it really is something. And as I, like I said, as I really dwelt on that and think, thought about it at night when I'm going to sleep and everything too, I'm thinking, you know, because I think it was uh, Augustine that mentioned that, you know, his mm-hmm. blood is he came from her blood and her body and yes she did he did and if because that transfer of, of cells goes both ways yeah it goes to the child and to the mother so your child has you know when you come up to your child you know your child said well I thought I had times when I thought my mother was looking over over my shoulder well she was <laughs> right she was in your shoulder she was right. part of you and 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 those cells have helped save mothers' lives, and they, you know, the sad part about it is, you know, uh, in our culture that's so decayed and and rotten anymore. When when uh, even when uh, ladies are pregnant 
and and abort the baby, those that cell transfers are that's what still happen. Mm. And, and almost as really, if almost as if to testify against them. Absolutely, and you know, yeah. and and uh, it's just a uh, uh, remarkable thing as you see, you know, because there's a lot of things we couldn't do or see or know because. Uh, and, you know, uh, the good part to me about it is that what are a lot of people that are not strong in their faith, they say, well, what does science say? Well, we've got enough things now that they really have to fight it because of the science and, uh, that we have, because of the yeah. technology and the, the microscopes that can see what well, they see you know, now and stuff. When you, when you go back to it, with the, the way the science has advanced, uh, these relics are science. I mean, they're they're a link. They're scientific proof. The interesting thing is, uh, Dr. Greg, when we were talking about third class and second class and first class relics, uh, there's been thousands of saints in the history of the Catholic Church, and we have first class relics of many, many, many of them. In fact, some of the uh, we have uh, a number of saints that are known as the incorruptible, that their bodies have just not corrupted after sometimes hundreds of years. St. Catherine Laboray is one example. St. Bernadette Tobias uh, is another example. St. Padre Pio is an example. Uh, Blessed Carlo Acutis is an example. These are non-corruptible, uh, incorruptible. Uh, but we have thousands and thousands of saints that we have either their, their entire bodies or parts of their bodies as relics, including all of the apostles. Now, there is one exception. <laughs> there is one very, very important exception, or at least one, but one in particular, very, very important exception of a very, very important saint. We don't have any first-class relics. Uh, and you know who I'm talking about, and uh, explain why, and explain why it, it, it proves one of the most important doctrines of our Catholic faith. You know who I'm speaking about. Well, I, I assume that one, at least until yesterday, <laughs> I assume we're talking about the uh, uh, part of the clothing of Mary. You know, well, uh, uh, so what I'm saying is that, that we don't have any first-class relics. No, you know, we no, have we... like the we have like the finger of uh, of Mary Ma Magdalene, or or the you know, like you said, the body of this saint, or the arm of that saint, or what have you. Nothing like that of Mary. Nothing. Explain no, why that no. is. Well, uh, because Mary was assumed into heaven in in the fullness of uh, her body and blood and soul and divinity. She she went up to to Jesus by his power brought her up into heaven total and uh, so they didn't weren't able to uh, get pieces of mary unless <laughs> unless of right. course someone could prove that they had some of her hair or something you know so but uh, now this doesn't this doesn't uh, mean that mary ascended into heaven the same way that jesus did no that's right jesus ascended into heaven under his own power mary was taken into heaven was assumed into heaven by the power of our Lord, uh, and we read about this in the um, in the works of Maria of Abreda. 
She she writes very uh, detailed about the uh, assumption of of Mary. So where where would somebody go if they wanted to learn more about relics, especially first class relics? And where could people go, maybe even in this country, to see a first class relic? Well, uh, to answer both those questions, uh, the, the, uh, well, the, the, and they've had a couple of, uh, of uh, different uh, showings of, of relics that came from the, uh, the Vatican Exposition, which shows uh, many relics that have been a- approved by the Vatican. Uh, that's especially what we try to work with when we do the Eucharistic miracles, because there's so many things that go back to, uh, you know, I always, hopefully, and, uh, you know, when you try to research things and hopefully, uh, uh, you know, people can't uh, uh, say no to it, basically, if you research enough to find out what the fullness of truth is on something, uh, as much as you can, it's hard for people to disagree. And that's why on the first-class relics, that we are aware of, that we know, and that have been approved by the Magisterium of the Church over the uh, <clears throat> over the centuries, that you wonder if anybody even paid attention at all, if they truly in their heart want to know the truth, and they look at a Eucharistic miracle that's, say, uh, 1,200 years old, and it acts just like the Eucharist acts just like it's... Uh, uh, heart tissue that was just uh, just died, you know, that it still has uh, like live tissue. How is anybody out there still doubting, you know, when you, when you right. know these things exist? And I know that there has been some conversions and reversions as a result of finding these things out. And that's why, that's why one of the reasons why, you know, I mentioned earlier that we've we have had such poor catechesis, at least for the last six generations, or six decades anyway, in, in uh, the Catholic Church. And, uh, you know, that's why we've had even, even uh, priests and, and hierarchy. There's things that I, I uh, you know, I would never, I, they used to have an aura around them when I was growing up, thinking that it, well, if a priest said it or a bishop said it, that's the way it has to be. Well, I don't, I don't feel that anymore. Yeah. I give them the respect first, you know, and, I, and I'll look into something. But I know that, uh, you know, that they they make mistakes. They're humans, and Satan is so much smarter than they are. And if they aren't, they don't cover themselves with the, the uh, die to themselves and let the Holy Spirit guide them. Satan can own them just like anybody else. They're just human. Yeah, no. at, the, at the end of the day, we have to bow to the authority of the church. Uh, it, is, it is the Pope and the magisterium that are guarded by the charism of uh, in, infallibility. And, and we get some of, these, some of these Catholics, even, like you said, even rogue priests that, that kind of go rogue and want to do their own thing and follow their own thing, and uh, very, very dangerous things. So I want to throw a couple of scenarios at you and I want you to tell me if these would be considered first class relics okay so the host in a Eucharistic miracle 
would that be a first class relic? It can it contains the 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 blood the the blood and the flesh of of, of Christ. Would it would that be considered a first class relic? Uh, absolutely. I think that's the highest uh, first class relic that we have in existence, and okay. it's in every tabernacle in the in the world. All right, fair enough. How about the cloth that was used to, to wipe the face of Jesus, St. Veronica's cloth, would that be considered a first-class relic? If they have that in reality, the, uh, the cloth that wipes his face, it's a first-class relic, yes. Okay. Then obviously so would, so would be the Shroud of Turin. That would also be a first-class relic. Yes. Yes, and they're getting... Because of science, they're getting even stronger and stronger in, in being able to recognize that uh, that that is reality there too. Yes. Mm-hmm. How about the Ark of the Covenant? If they were to find the actual Ark of the Covenant, would that be considered to be a relic? After all, it it, it held within it the three things that 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 personified Jesus. It held the manna. It held the the, the bread from heaven. It held the the Word of God, the Ten Commandments, it held the the uh, rod of uh, Aaron. So, would the tri- would the Ark of the Covenant be considered to be a first class relic, or would it be considered to be I, a second I believe class that, relic? I believe that everybody that uh, that would he be in in where they could even see, but even contact would consider uh, everything that's happened with the Ark. When anyone touched it or tried to open it, you know, uh, I think they died every time, didn't they? Well, Uzzah was certainly struck dead. Yeah, and it was a uh, so it, it's it's a uh, the the awesomeness of that that is part of God and what you know his his word his uh, everything that was. Uh, there, I believe, would have to be looked at as a first-class relic. Okay, know. so this would include uh, the nails that pierced the hands and feet of Jesus, the spear that was thrust yeah. into his side. These would be first-class relics. Absolutely, yes. Okay. Yes. So if we have all of these relics of all the apostles, and we can basically demonstrate how each of the, these apostles died and and plus so many other martyrs that we have including some of the young martyrs the you know saint cecilia uh saint saint uh, catherine saint philomena some of these young martyrs that died and we have all these relics why do we still have so many doubters oh i think you know uh, we have we can't separate the fact that our our uh, not only are is the church uh, poorly catechized, you know, but the uh, the recogni- recognition of you know how how many people do you know just personally uh, uh, that have read the doctors and saints of the church, you know. Uh, I mean, Probably be, not enough. <laughs> I probably probably I know there's probably let's say uh, probably six eight hundred people in in the parish here at Marshall, and as far as anyone that has really 
read about the saints, you, you're just looking at a handful, very very small handful of people. Well, most in, of the in, time, in but, truth, in fairness, I've discovered this myself. It's almost a bottomless pit <laughs> because every book that you read about the saints will refer you to three or four other events and three or four other saints and three or four other books, and you end up going down rabbit trail after rabbit trail after rabbit trail. Um, you could spend your entire life reading about the lives of the saints uh, and not exhaust it. Uh, so you know, they're, they're, I, I agree. I mean, I, I agree that that's, that's – that's the reality of, of the world we live in, but it's not. But if you were to, if just off the top of your head, just off the top of your head, if, if I were to say, give me half a dozen titles that are really must reads that you must, that you feel like you've read that are must reads to the proper formation of your Catholic faith. You give me, give me half a dozen and and I'll see if it, it would be like the same half a dozen I would have, and, and then we'll, we'll we'll kind of start there. So give me a cup a couple a half a dozen of of the must reads of the of the things. Well, I, I would I would say uh, some right away because of uh, how close I try to be to Jesus and Mary would would be the the uh, book of the mystics like Saint uh, Agreta. And and the different, uh, I think there was maybe four of them in that book that they talked about. Uh, Catherine of uh, what is it? Uh, no, and Catherine Emmerich. Saint Catherine Emmerich, yeah, and yeah. Uh, Saint I think Saint Bridget. There were, I think, four of them in that book that you're talking about. You mentioned earlier. Yeah. That is an absolute read. You know, yeah. uh, that that one I would for sure lead people to in a heartbeat. I think, uh, to me, uh, to read uh, uh, the one that St. Louis de Montmorth read, uh, that wrote true de- on man true devotion also, to Mary. True Devotion to Mary. I think it's mm-hmm. very, very important because yeah. one of the things that I tell most people at the conferences and stuff is that uh, when, I, when I come through the relics and everything, I make sure, I said, no matter what, make sure you pick up uh, one of these books of uh, either De Montfort or or uh, Maximilian Colby or or the Thirty Three Days of Morning Glory or some. I said, look at because I said this goes all the way up to the Pope. But I'm going to tell you, you can be a very good person. But I said, you if you want to go to a higher level, make a consecration to mm-hmm. Jesus through the Sorrowful Immaculate Heart of Mary, and yeah. because of because of her humility. Do what? It's a can't miss. It's an absolute can't miss. Yeah, no, that's a home run if you have. And and yeah. I tell them to kind of it's, prep. Them it's a, a home bit. run. Said, it's a home run and a touchdown all in one. <laughs> everything you bet. I tell them. I said I'm going to tell you how to start because it's not just matter. Don't do it just because Greg said it or because your friend Bob is going to do it or Sally or whatever. I'm I'm going to tell you how how I think you can get the best results from it is go in before the Blessed Sacrament just for 20, 30 minutes. Just talk to the good Lord. Let the Holy Spirit guide you to make a perfect consecration. All right, give me a couple more titles. uh, Imitation of Christ. Uh, Thomas Akempis. Do what? 
by Thomas Akempis. That's three that you've gone so far that I've read all three. <laughs> Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. Yeah. Uh, if you can uh, get into, and, and I'm going to tell you a couple of things that might be a little bit time-consuming and lengthy because you won't do it overnight, is the Summa Theologica, mm-hmm. you know, St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas one, Aquinas. That one's still sitting on my bookshelf. I keep, it, it, I've got it, but I just got to, I, I got to get the gumption to start on it. That's a big work. That's well, 3,000 pages. <laughs> It is a big work, and it is one that I think that if we, again, have to ask the Holy Spirit to guide us, because yeah. I, I'm a slow reader anyway, and uh, so I need, uh, I, you know, I, I'm hoping that when I read it that I, I pick up on what I need to pick up on. You know, one of the things I'm going to mention right away about St. Thomas Aquinas, he was taught in all the universities in the world at one time, Yeah, you know, and uh he was actually by his fellow seminarians. They called him a dumb ox. And, yeah, he's brilliant. He's just absolutely he, brilliant. For sure, he is. And uh, all right, so give so, me one or two more. Give me one or two more titles. Okay. Uh, my golly, I uh, <laughs> just off the top of my head. I know I'm thinking something here in a minute. It's uh. uh You know, I, I think uh, St. Augustine's uh, writings on uh, confession, uh, uh, confession. Uh, I think that's an awesome uh, read. Also, uh, it is. That's a powerful I think, book. I think uh, when I break one of the uh, ones we were talking about, Mary, break one of them away, uh, the Dolores Passion uh, by St. Catherine Emmerich. Yeah. Uh, that is a a beautiful gift. I'm going to recommend, though, I'm going to recommend that everybody do what I did and not read her entire works. Read her four books are in one volume called Her Complete Works. And and I'm going to recommend you do that. It's a big read, but it gives you so much more context than reading just one of the books individually. The Dolores Passion of Our Lord is one of the books of of the four that's in the complete works. Okay, one more. Oh, uh, yeah. uh. <laughs> oh. I'm at a loss right now. I'll think okay. something we're going forward. Okay, I, did, I didn't mean to I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Um it's, it's okay to do that. I all of the titles that you gave, all the titles you gave are, are, are great. They're all fantastic. Uh, and I've read all of them with the exception of the Summa. And I've got it. I just, you know, I've read a little bit of Thomas Aquinas and, and he, he's hard to get through. It takes work. It takes work. You gotta be willing to, gotta be willing to put in the time. Uh, I'm going to give you a few that, uh, that I thought were, um, that I thought were uh, uh, amazing. One of them, one of them was, uh, well, you said Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, which is definitely uh, a, a must-have. Now, that book and the book that I'm going to name kind of fight it out for second best-selling 
Christian book of all time behind the Bible. So these are the two books that run two and three behind the Bible as biggest selling Christian book of all time. One of them is Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. And the other is Story of a Soul by St. Teresa of Lisieux. That is definitely a must read uh, to understand the little way. To understand that salvation is within the reach of, of guys like us, ordinary people. Okay? Tell them how old she was when she went into the uh, uh, to the con- convent and how old she was when she died. She died at 24. <laughs> I think that yeah, she entered into the convent at 13, right? I mean, it was just... I think 15, but it was somewhere in the uh, yeah. middle of low teens, yeah. Boy, she packed and, a wall up in those, in those nine years, though, didn't she? Can you imagine being a doctor of the church in that young, short life? Yeah. You know, just... Uh, if anything else, at least maybe would, uh, you know, uh, cause the curiosity in people to say, what right. in the world? How, how do they call her a doctor of church? So, you know, she, so, that, so that book makes sense of our faith. And I'm going to give you another title, another classic, that also does the same thing, but from a little bit of a different angle. But it makes sense of of our faith, especially the difficult parts of our faith. And it is generally considered one of the all-time top classics of, of, of Catholic uh, books, and that is Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross. Powerful book. Absolutely powerful book. Another one that I'm going to recommend is a book that, that actually um, St. Teresa of Lisieux actually said that this book was the book that inspired her, believe it or not, and that's The End of the Present World by Father Charles Armingen. Uh, so, so that's three. Um, Interior Castle by St. Teresa of Avila would be uh, another one. Um, and uh, the Diary of St. Faustina is, a, is another one. Okay. That, uh, yeah. those, those are all um, yeah. must-read, in, in my view. The Diary, so, Diary of St. Faustina, how, how, how I could miss something like that. That's, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in these last few minutes of the show, I want to I kind of go into a, kind of a touchy subject, Okay. That a problem that we have in, in our world, okay, because uh, in, in our Catholic community. We have, you know, the Bible talks about people who make a pretense of religion but deny its power. And those are the ones that deny miracles and deny signs and wonders and, and, and all that. But I want to talk about those who go to the other extreme. They get so caught up in uh, private revelations, get so caught up in, in so-called uh, mystic writers and, and visionaries. Maria Divine Mercy is one example. Um, you know, writings like this, and they get so caught up in it that they lose their foothold and stop listening to the authority of the church and go following after 
questionable and sometimes even condemned uh, writings, teachings, revelation. How do we as a, as a church get a hold of that? How do we get back a hold of that so we're looking at authentic miracles and not going after everyone who, you know, claims that they heard a voice in their head or claims that they saw the Virgin Mary in their backyard? I'm not trying to be facetious at all. I'm just there. There is a limit at, at which it, it becomes a it becomes a negative and starts to form a caricature of, of Catholics rather than uh, 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 people who believe in the miraculous. So how do we get gain control of that, Greg? Well, I, I think right away, and I, I'm make us, I will not make us overly simplistic, just just the fact that what you said exists, and it's, it's, it's a plethora in the church, you know, that so many people get caught up in, in, uh, in a uh, something where it's, where it's uh, plausible, I guess, that, that it may have happened. But the only ones that we have to for sure acknowledge in the church or stopped with the last revelation of the, of St. John, the saints, right? Mm-hmm. Those are, those are absolutes. Now, uh, but when the church looks at something like Fatima, you know, and everything that happened with Fatima, uh, when they put their infallibility, infallible stamp of approval and said it's very probable and it's something that you should believe, well, I would say you better believe that. But if if it's just something that has pretty rhetoric and, you know, because people can design the Satan's better than any of us at doing this. He can design something to be very uh, positive looking in a person's uh, eyes, you know. And uh, and so they want to get into it more. They believe it more and more. And, and, let and, it and if you do have some, if you do have some that have some little, you know, signs to them, little signs and wonders to them, uh, and yet the church says, don't follow it. It's bad. It's 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 false. You got to stay away from it because, and that power is not divine power. That power is greater uh, natural, you know, probably. Right, and and we have, I mean, we have a long history in the Catholic Church of of some of these types of uh, false, you know, revelations that 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 were uh, that were condemned. I'll give, I, I I'm going to give three examples. All right, not that I'm trying to poke the bear or whatever, but I'm going to give three examples, okay? One of them is the writings of Maria Divine Mercy, clearly condemned by the church, absolutely condemned by the church, okay? And, and yet there's people that still follow it. There's people that still follow these teachings, all right? Uh, the other is a lot of these uh, prophecies, like the so-called prophecy of uh, Saint Malachi about the about the last pope and all this. The Church has never approved that or acknowledged that. Uh, but some people use that as as gospel, and by counting the numbers and everything, they say, "Oh, the current pope is an invalid pope because Saint Malachi, way back when, said such and such and so and so." And the truth of it is that the church has said it's probably a, 
a fraudulent, you know, uh, work anyway. It probably was never written by St. Malachi. And even if it is authentic, um, and of course the last one that I'm going to bring up, um, that just probably the biggest religious deception uh, in history, and I'm just going to bring it up because it's been condemned by 22 bishops, and that's Medjugorje. And yet there are people that continue to follow Medjugorje. It's been condemned by 22 bishops by a count of 22 to 0. So I'm not going to ask you to answer specifically on one or the other, but in totality, these are examples where the church has spoken and people decide to go in a different direction. Then I, I, I'm trying to understand how that works. How can you claim that you believe in the authority of the Catholic Church, you are Catholic, but then when the Catholic Church tells you to stay away from this or stay away from that, uh, don't go in this door, you go barging in. It's, it's, it's the same thing. It's, to me, it's no different than the Catholics who say, well, I'm Catholic, but I'm pro-abortion. I'm Catholic, but I'm pro-gay marriage. I'm Catholic, but I don't have to go to confession uh, if I'm, uh, you know, living uh, with my girlfriend or living with my boyfriend uh, in sin. Uh, you know, God still loves me, so I'm still going to go and receive communion. Um, I, I just, how do we get our hands around all this, all this, uh, all these false Catholics? I tell you, one of the things that I read years ago in my life as I was studying the different things. And one of the things, and I'm going to, I'm going to mention, hopefully I don't mispronounce who this person is, but I think she was called Mother Mary Magdalene, you know, was mm-hmm. in, in more, uh, you know, uh, maybe 17, 1800s or whatever. But uh, she, uh, she had a, a uh, you know, perception of, of some gifts that uh, from people onlookers that she had even uh, uh, some of the hierarchy in the church and kings and stuff they were they were so mesmerized by her that they just uh, were were believing that if, if she said it that's the way it is and uh, she uh, uh, they find out that she had two demons in her, that were exercised at the end of it. Well, one of the things that uh, that it was saying in the in what I was reading at that time was that, and it w- reminds me of of Medjugorje because I can have no one on on that if they have a strong strong faith there. But I, it's not a condemnation. But I'm telling them, this is what the ch- church teaches. You can have everybody that's hunting for the, the faith, the truth. You know, good things are going to happen. It's going to happen that good things will happen. It doesn't mean it was supernatural. It right. just means that in the natural course of searching in their hearts that sometimes we can, you know, and if we always remember that Satan's working too, he's never quitting. And, and if, you're, if you're truly trying to come closer to the good Lord and his mother, you've got a target on your back. Right. Satan's coming after you full force and he's and, and, and that's a, and And that's a thing. Greg, that's so important because a lot of these people get hostile. I mean, some of these people get 
Greg and I do not hate somebody or want to harm somebody because Greg and I do not believe in Medjugorje. Greg and I do not believe in Medjugorje because that's where the evidence leads. That's what the church has taught. And you have six visionaries that have become multimillionaires, and that doesn't mesh with, with Bernadette of Lourdes and, and Francisco and Jacinta and Lucia of, of uh, Fatima. Now, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, we have some kind of hatred or disrespect uh, for someone who, you know, may have had a good experience. That, my first experience in Medjugorje, I'll be honest with you, I, I, we got rosaries back that had turned gold. We got miraculous medals that had turned gold. So my first experience in Medjugorje was that it was positive. Uh, but the same thing happened at Nacida, Wisconsin. And bottom line, Greg, what the church says goes. And, um, and, and I know you've done presentations on like Eucharistic miracles and many other things, but they lose their validity when you are um, promoting the false ones along with, with, with the real ones. So uh, we're almost out of time. I'd like you, once again, I'd like you to tell our listeners where they can get some of your books and where they can get some of the uh, information on some of these uh, relics and miracles. So I've, I've heard that there's a couple of them that somebody can pick up uh, probably used on Amazon or one of those places, but uh, any anyone that anyone listened to on this on your program, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer one right now that if they want, I, when I watch Nefarious, I don't know if you've seen that yet. Yes, I have. Uh, and uh, just uh, an element to me is showing the intelligence of Satan and how he uh, could uh, manipulate people. But uh, if uh, if they would like, just as a taste, to start, if they want like yeah, what I did, I came home from that, and I've done it to three of my books now, because they're 250 to 325 pages, and I said, nobody's going to read them. For the most part, nobody will read them. In our, and especially in our culture today, most people won't read unless it's on DVD or, or CD. They're not going to give the extra time to it. But I went home dumb watching that because I, because of how much the education system in in this country has been uh, been used as a tool of Satan. Uh, I went home and, and cut uh, some uh, 40, 45 uh, uh, page pages uh, out of it, out of these books. Mm-hmm. And if anybody would like a, a uh, a copy of that. Uh, let me know. Give me an address and everything, and I'll, I'll send it to me. They, they, if they feel like they want it. Uh, I had a friend and and, an, and my godmother, who was a Benedictine nun. Both of them told me about the same time. You know, and they both told me that uh, uh, my aunt just said, "Gregory, sometimes you just have to say thank you." and and go on, and then uh, the, this principal from the from the next uh, district over, 
she wanted to get me something for Christmas, and and I, I said no, I don't eat things. She said, uh, I she said I see you say that to your daughters. And I said yeah, I don't eat anything. She said, uh, she said, well, but you like to give it to things to other people. I said yeah, that's one of my favorite things. And she said, well then, but why do you not allow somebody else that wants to give something their blessing away? It just hit me at the moment in time where if someone really wants to have something, I've got to take a phone call here, and I apologize. All right. God bless you, Greg. Thank you for coming on our show, and I hope you'll you'll come on again. God bless you, and have a wonderful week. God bless you, brother. Okay, you have been listening to The Tangled Knot with Deborah Rojas, and obviously I am not Deborah Rojas, but she will be back at the same time next week. And Deborah Rojas can be reached at Integrity Counseling Services. That is IntegrityCounselingPA.com. Or you can reach her at 610-601-9781. Integrity Counseling, The Tangled Knot, is brought to you by the Four Persons Network. The Four Persons Network is a legally protected 501c3 all rights reserved. Your contributions to the Four Persons are tax deductible. Go to thefourpersons.com for more information. And no information from the Four Persons may be used without our express consent. God bless you until next week. This has been Thank you, Good night. God bless you.